Imagine having all, guess all, of your learning challenges solved. With Dochevo's Learning Suite, an AI-powered LMS built for enterprise, you can tackle any challenge. You can easily create and manage content, deliver training, and measure the business impact of your programs. Dochevo is built for customers, partners, and employees alike, with dozens of integrations to embed directly in the flow of work. Check out Dochevo today at docebo.com. Well, welcome to C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we take customer education myths and misconceptions and chop them up with a chainsaw. How gruesome. I'm Adam Evermescu, and I am super excited to be here today with Phil Byrne, who leads customer education at Intercom. Hi, Phil. Hey, Adam. How is it going? It's going well. I hope we can recover from that violent intro, but... Not before we acknowledge that today is what day is it? This is my favorite bit of the podcast. Awareness Day, Shark Awareness Day. <laughs> How there's many levels of awareness of a shark. There's like <laughs> right. I know of sharks. Then there's this is like the shark yeah. funnel. I know of sharks. I am mm-hmm. aware of an oncoming shark. Oh, the shark. And then yeah, like am I aware globally that sharks exist, or am I aware that a shark is around me? Yeah, that's like too woke. In the world of sharks, it's like now, too I guess, close I guess, to the shark. I thought you were going to go like, am I interested in the shark? Have I made a decision about what to do with the shark? Yeah. In the shark, that's the shark kind of like purchase funnel. I'm more downstream, so it'd be the shark adoption funnel. So I'd be talking about intent. Does the shark have intent mm. to, to eat me? Well, first of all, awareness, then intent. And then maybe there's a paywall of some sort, some sort of a taste wall. <laughs> and then the shark has started to activate. He's engaged and there's deep consumption of me and success and high likelihood to retain. Well, thanks, everyone. That's our show. If you've gotten value out of this, you can find... No, I'm kidding. We're going <laughs> to need right. a bigger funnel. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. All right. Back on track. So, Phil, I'm really excited to have you here today because you and I have a lot of really good conversations about customer education, and often they cover many topics under one broad theme. And I actually think that's sort of the path we'll take today as well. Because like, for our audience, we do this from time to time where we just have customer education leaders talking customer education leadership. But what Phil and I were, were talking about before we decided to record this episode was really around the idea of how you get into customer education and how you get into a customer education leadership role and how some of the skills and focus areas that you uh, are really, I'm trying not to say the word focus again, but that you focus on (laughs) change as time goes on. And so we want to orient this conversation ultimately around the idea of how you measure your effectiveness in terms of your customer education program. But I really enjoyed hearing the story of how that evolved for you over time and how in some ways you pivoted your own career into thinking about these things, but also the way that you tested and experimented within your own programs to get to the view that you have today. Cool. Yeah. And look, I could talk all day, but I'll try and keep it as succinct as possible about that kind of thing. And for me, the journey has been really interesting because I only realized the further I went into it, why I enjoyed that journey so much and why something I previously thought like data and, and you know revenue based metrics I thought they were scary and these don't excite me it was about finding the connection and the creativity in them 
that really lit them up for me and really made them make sense to me and turned them into something that I could help motivate a team about and create connections between our team and key teams within our business to have more impact for Intercom and our customers. Yeah. So like you, you said the word creative, which is a, like a, a spark for me because you are a creative, Phil, right? You came from the world of, of music production and, and uh, video. Like I would love to understand just first of all, let's talk about getting into this crazy world of SaaS and customer education in the first place. Can you tell us how you got into it? Yeah, sure. It was a, an interesting path. All right. Uh, I never would have saw myself here. So like you said, I always dabbled in music production. It was always a, a really interesting fun hobby. I used to DJ and, and produce dance music or EDM for our American listeners. And that was always a great fun thing to do, but it was never the day job. Let's say go back about my early 20s. I was a, a manager of a support team in a live chat center for an online gaming company and had the unenviable, but actually quite interesting looking back on a a task of shutting down that office and helping it it move to Costa Rica. And that was where I first dabbled in producing educational content, but I didn't really know it. I was charged with moving that job over there and creating some content to enable the teams who are effectively going to be doing our jobs and, and, and creating video content for them. And definitely found it interesting, but never really thought this is something I'd love to do. Obviously, a little bit of a, a weirdness around that whole time, uh, but, it, but it was interesting and great to be able to try and explain a complex topic or, or, or process clearly to someone through the medium of video. This is the first time I'd done that and it, it was super interesting. However, a couple of weeks later, offices being shut down, got a redundancy payment. That was nice. I decided right now is the time to dabble no more in music production, actually take it on as a, a serious job and to try and pay my way with this. Did that for about seven or eight years. And that was like super interesting. And, and I think a lot of people don't get that chance to go and follow their dreams in that way. And did some awesome stuff, played all around the world and, and eventually started making music for TV and media. But then I realized probably a little too late that I, I was spending half my time going out and chasing work as a self-employed person. It, it's super important. Probably about a third of my time trying to get paid from the people I don't work for, and very little of my yeah. time actually doing the thing I loved. Like you end up becoming your own like salesperson and your own accountant instead of actually just like doing the work. Exactly, and the escapism you got from that is no longer escapism because there's a lot of pressure around you. You're trying to feed your family and pay for your mortgage with this kind of thing. So, took a lot of the joy out of that, and I, I realized that I wanted to go back and I wanted to get the joy from that as escapism like I used to and start paying the way with a job which I I got to flex some creativity in but wasn't music production. So at the time my brother worked for Intercom, still does, and he made me aware of a role that was open with the product education team creating educational videos and over the last two or three years I'd begun to teach music production with online music colleges and in person and that was where I suppose I hadn't ever been aware of it, but the joy that I got from teaching people and that aha moment you get either online or in person with someone when they finally click and see, I could do this. This is cool. I I get this now. And you can see them envisioning their future being better because of something you just told them. And that's really powerful and something I got a lot from. Uh, And that was the first time I really thought that this was something I would like to do. I never stupidly made the connection between this job opening and being able to do that. And 
it took two or three days before I got back to my brother and said, actually, I'd like to do this because I've been trying to think of <laughs> friends of mine who would like to do this. I know a person yeah. and he is me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who knows me? Know thyself. We had an existentialist chat before this, so I may call back to that. And if you don't have full context, apologies. We'll do another podcast on that. But yeah, it was really fun and a great way for me to realize some of these things that I'd done uh, over the past, you know, 10 years or so. We're kind of adding up to this role that I never even knew existed. I never even really knew of SaaS as an industry. And it was super interesting. And I dove really deep into the whole space when I started uh, making these educational videos for Intercom. And it was a much simpler product at the time. And my boss, Rory, who's still, still my boss on the customer engagement team, was giving me make a video about this over the next two weeks. I'm just picking off pieces of the product that hadn't got educational content around them. So that was super interesting for the first couple of weeks um, or first couple of months, just making these videos and knowing more about the product, making great relationships in Intercom as well. And if you know Intercom, it's a real product first company and they really, really do a great job of bringing you along for the ride and getting you to understand product methodologies and frameworks and the jobs to be done method of where product meets marketing as well. So that really lit a fire in me. I really wanted to know, was this stuff that I was making videos about actually working to get customers to do the thing we were trying to get them to do to enable the change that they wanted to make for their business? Phil, like what made you start asking those questions? Because, you know, you come in and you're, you know how to do video, you're good at video, you could like keep doing videos forever, but at some point you... Clearly, you started to ask that question of yourself, like, what if I didn't do video, right? Like, yeah. Or is this actually working? That's the thing. Videos, as you know, they're an expensive medium time-wise and I suppose money-wise by that rationale. And if they're working, that's cool. If the return on investment is there, that's amazing. But I really wanted to know where they're working because I was cranking them out and they're taking a lot of time and just really wanted to run some light experimentation. And obviously, Intercom was much smaller. We were sitting right beside where the engineers were as well. So it was easy for us to have custom data points that we made to send out messages to customers to say, you know, in our case, hey, install the Intercom Messenger or invite a teammate or forward your emails to Intercom, deliver that content to them with a video on how to do it. And then subsequently, mm -hmm. two weeks after receiving the content, measure and see has that data point changed? Have they gone and installed the Messenger or forwarded emails or invited a teammate? And as soon as I started digging into data, that again, was a, a bit of an aha moment for me. And being able to get that creative stimulation, which is super important for me, from data and experimentation, because it was just like doing puzzles and like playing a game <laughs> with data and behavior, was super interesting. I, I was amazed at how into it I got and still am. Well, that's it. I think like a lot of us in customer education, like paradoxically, we become very data informed over time. But it's, it's actually, I think, coming in a large part from that same desire to be creative and to experiment and try things out as we do even content. Yeah. So sometimes people think, oh, like, oh, if you experiment, you're a numbers person and you're, you're focused on the science and not the art, but they're, they're actually, they're far more related than I think people give them credit for. Oh, totally. Like, and again, for music production, music is just maths. Like, it's all about the, the relation of the things to each other and, and, you know, things will sound bad if they don't, you know, gel well, like uh, mathematically. You know, like Four over three polyrhythms and... Exactly. That's syncopation between things. If you put it down on paper, you can see it looks beautiful. And that's where that connection is. It's in the same thing with running experiments. Like the numbers, there's art to it and there's definite scope for creativity yeah. there. And that's what I love. And that's what that 
keeps me going, that kind of thing. So like what type of experiments were you running then? So Let's like talk about that. I'll get into one of the bigger experiments in a little while, which was we did a couple of years ago, which was terrifying. But we started out quite small with, okay, let's see if we A-B test this video. If we have a shorter edit, are people more likely to do it than a longer edit? And then it became, okay, shorter edit worked. And then you're thinking media agnostic, like, okay, what if I just had a couple of lines of copy instead of that shorter video? Because if I could get away with that in more places, we could do things a lot quicker. And over the course of months and years, you get better informed for what customers at what stage of their life cycle, with what kind of role, with what kind of behavior you're trying to affect, we will be able to do so with the least amount of friction. If it's a couple of lines of copy, amazing. You don't need to get them to watch a 60 second or, or two minute video. If it's yeah. a little bit in between, if it's a doc, even better, you know, you know, that's cool. You can get more into that and you still don't need to sink a week into it like you might do for a video. So in some ways it was sort of like a lot of customer education professionals struggle. And in fact, I just, I read a report recently that, that pointed to this to get really beyond that Kirkpatrick level one and two. Like we can all run our learner surveys we can all run post-tests, but then there's a pretty big drop-off after that with people who can actually measure whether there's any sort of behavioral change as a result of that, that training. So what's really interesting to me is you actually found a way into measuring that next level of training effectiveness, but you weren't doing it as this like post-hoc measurement activity. You were actually using it to figure out what the best form of training to drive that behavior would be. Yeah. And when the best time to deliver that training as well. Like, yeah, we rebooted our onboarding flow a couple of years ago as myself and Kate, who used to be on the customer education team, uh, who's now on our advocacy team, shout out to Kate. Mm -hmm. We broke it. Like we, we had, you know, messages that were a little too late in the life cycle and we saw activation tanking and it was great to be able to just like move things around. And it's not just what, it's who you deliver to, it's when you deliver it as well. There's so many different components that when you're in that experimentation mindset and you've got enough throughput to get a signal from things, you can really, really drive a lot of change for the better by tweaking all these different levers. And that helps you be better informed going forward about where you're going to spend that effort, especially if you need to think nimbly or, and get a lot done in a short amount of time. Having that experimentation and the results of those experiments behind you makes you much better informed for where to spend that effort in future. I don't take credit for much of this at all. Like we are really lucky in Intercom to be sitting so close to our product team and we're using the product that we're trying to teach people about. We're delivering this content with Intercom, which is an amazing platform to be able to use that kind of custom data, like unique to your business to deliver those content types and then measure that change as well. So I never take it for granted that we're in a really unique place to actually have a really short cycle on this kind of thing to experiment and improve things. You're in an interesting place organizationally in the sense that you report into marketing. You've always been very close to your product team. Did you report into product at one point? No, it was a blurry line uh, and you know we, we flip-flopped about it. And I always revisit that question every year, like, are we in the right place? Do we have the right inputs uh, into us? But we've always been in the, the marketing team. But yeah. When I joined, the marketing was led by products. He's now by Des, who built the company. He's one of the founders and has a great product mm -hmm. mindset. So we've always had those product triggers and frameworks to, to base all our content off. And I love being in marketing. I love uh, the closeness we have the product. And we're also kind of, I suppose we have four different vectors that we kind of move along. And that would be product, marketing, support. And we've got our 
sales team and solutions team as well. And all of our content will have different dials on all that, that for all those orgs. And wherever you are in the customer lifecycle, whoever you're talking to and whatever you're trying to get them to be able to do, means you just dial up or down. And that's something that being where we are means we are able to do that much more nimbly. And some of this yeah. came from when I started as well. We were small, we were selling to super small customers who were on a two-week trial and renewing with us on a monthly basis. Monthly subscriptions means that you should always be in that marketing mindset and always be able to move on that scale of how to do a thing, but also why to do the thing and positively yeah. reinforce someone's decision to do this in the future. And I don't think you should ever get out of that mindset. It doesn't matter if you're on you know, annual contracts or biannual contracts. Someone should always feel like they've made the right choice and they should always feel excited to use your product, especially if you're trying to expand their usage or get them to use a, a new product. It's important to be yeah. able to, to flex those, those muscles as well because that educational content, like any kind of teaching moment that you'd have with a person, they'll feed off your energy and your confidence in what you're trying to get them to do. And if you honestly believe in it and you honestly are able to convince them that this is the right way to do this to affect that change you want for your business, those barriers come down and they're much more likely to ingest that content or even if they're not the right person, find the right person to share this with. So that's something, again, I don't take for granted because it's easy to do where we are because we're in marketing, we're close to sales and we are close to product who are making that product. A lot of times we're involved right from the start of those products being made as well. So we're in such a unique spot and I, I never take it for granted. Yeah, you're in a really interesting spot, in, not just in relation to other customer education teams, which often sit neither in marketing nor in product, uh, but don't always have like, like, I think the best customer education teams always have a very, very cross-functional approach. And the fact that I look at kind of like two intricacies with with your team, one being that your leader, Rory, was hired very early, I think, what you were saying, or he was saying he was uh, like, Des hired him as one of the very first hires. Yeah, I think the, he's like the 12th hire or something like that. So that shows a lot of faith yeah. from Intercom in the importance of education. And Yeah, and like to, to actually like, you know, originally produce video and content and things like that that would just explain how to bring this product to life. And then, then secondarily, the fact that you've always been at this intersection of different teams and especially having such, I think, like a, a cascade between where you sit in marketing and then working so closely with product, which are typically the two teams in an organization that can experiment the most, like and have embraced experimentation as a decision-making tool. And yet to also then work with sales and support who work with large volumes of data as well, which actually makes them right for experimentation. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'd be interested to hear then, you mentioned there were some like really big experiments that you you piloted, like, Tell me about some of the big ones. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting stuff. And I'm going to call back to another ex-teammate, Jack Jenkins, who we ran this experiment with. He used to run our help center. And this was always an experiment I'd wanted to do. And I chatted to Rory about it and to Jack about it before we began. And we, this is one of those ones we had to get permission for because it was so drastic. And I also, just before we were hitting go on it, absolutely had some second guess moments where, what am I actually doing here? This is suicide. I just wanted to try and A-B test us as a team. And like, is the content we make effective and actually doing what it's supposed to do overall, not just these small little iterative experiments. So we have, I don't know if you've ever used Intercom, some embedded links at the top of every single URL. And when you're down creating pieces of content in Intercom, 
we have embedded links. Like that's that closeness with the product team and the fact that we've proved ourselves time and time again over launches with individual teams. We've got that license to work closely with them and make sure that we can solve problems for customers during the actual uses of the product itself. So it's great where we can actually create the right pieces of content to be delivered in the right place. However, at a zoomed out level, I just wanted to test, right? And I should give a little bit of context. At the time, we were talking a lot about proactive support and what it means to have like proactive and self-serve support versus human support. Because like Intercom obviously believes quite big in enabling customers to self-serve themselves if they can. I mean, it's like a big part of what you're product is right totally like you're you're really creating these like in product support experiences yeah absolutely and for ourselves that's to drive i'm like for everyone to be honest i think at the nub of it is to drive product adoption because if people aren't adopting your product and staying healthy with it they will die it doesn't matter how good the service sort of are. like if a shark stops swimming oh my god exactly keep those eyes open for the next episode that's the intro music so we're going to have to have you commission uh, one of your tracks uh, from your music production days, maybe as the intro of this episode. Absolutely. You couldn't afford me, Adam. I know. So yes, we were talking a lot about proactive support. We were talking about how proactive support done right and meeting customers where they're at with the right kind of content should, big should, reduce the amount of conversations that you will make for your support team. So we're like, okay, let's find this out. Is what we do actually doing that and driving those support costs down? So we got permission to run an A-B test over a slice of all new customers who started in Intercom over about a six-week period. And that's where I had the wobble. It's like, oh, what if we find out that our content is terrible? And, and actually people who engage with it overall compared to people who don't are less likely to do the things we want them to do. So yeah, or like what if the holdback group has the exact same experience not getting your content as like the people who Yeah, what what if it's the null? Yo, that's it. Yo, you're, yeah. you're done. But we ran it anyway and we <laughs> refreshed the dashboards every 10 minutes as is customary when you're running a big experiment. So, after about 6 weeks, we found out that the test group who did not have any of these links delivered to them in in these parts of the product were less likely to create a conversation with support. So that was really, really surprising. We had assumed, which is always bad, if you get this help content presented to you, you will be less likely to start a conversation with support because you'll know all the things. However, we saw that if you didn't see any help content, had no option to go and click on that help content, you were less likely to go and start a conversation with support. However, when we dug deeper into the numbers, we saw that although these people that did get the help content presented to them, and the help content is things like articles, videos, links to academy courses, product tours, that kind of thing, people who saw these and engaged with them were more likely to start conversations with support. So that's the the thing that surprised us and was bad and we thought we didn't want. But when we dug down and looked at the type of support conversations these folks were having, they were different conversations than the test group. So the test group was having fewer conversations, but they're simpler, mm. low-hanging fruit, FAQ-style questions, tire-kicking kind of questions, yeah. which is like okay. The stuff they would have gotten if they had actually gotten some education in the yeah, product if they had just, questions. You know, yeah, visited an FAQ or engaged with a bot, that kind of yeah. thing. So that's okay. It is what it is. But the folks who were seeing the help content, engaging with the help content, were asking different more complex questions about the product that they were trying to use themselves. So what was happening was the educational content, which is all being created in 
conjunction with our product teams in order to drive activation of these products because people are aware they're on those URLs, they're seeing the content, they're engaging, they've got intent, they're moving down to being active and engaged users. It's all, around, uh, all based around those kind of adoption funnels. They were getting momentum to carry down through the experience, try out the product, and the questions that they were asking the support team were really good questions on that activation journey, which technically bad if you're, you're managing a support team. These are stickier questions. You're getting more complex questions that you probably need a lot more humans to, to deal with. So at the basis level, I'd like to call back to something I said earlier, if you think about it, the job of the support team isn't just to answer questions or to reduce the cost of support. It's to yeah. drive product adoption and increase engagement and retention over time. So it was a great opportunity to show that we see there's more alignment in what we do than a lot of people think as well. And those folks yeah. who did start those sticker conversations and engage with the health content turned out to be a little over twice as likely to activate with those products, which is huge when you think about that amount of leverage at that part of the customer lifecycle for all new business that's coming through your products. So it was huge. Yeah, although the initial signals were confusing and not what we'd expected, mm -hmm. it turned out to be really, really inspiring stuff and showed us that we were doing things well, doing it right. And it's given us a lot of license to kind of carry forward, define how we do product adoption internally, lock in that seat that we already kind of had at, at the, the product table and show that we were driving activation and retention and engagement. Yeah. It was super important. This episode is brought to you by Vidiate. Vidiate automates the creation of software videos, making it super fast and easy to produce up-to-date content with every new release. From script to screen, with no in-between, you're able to skip all the manual labor production by simply plugging in a script to the platform and then watching that video come to life in real time. Check it out today at video.io. You made the case in a lot of ways for the value that your team provides. It just wasn't exactly the value that you, you thought you were going to see. And that's actually really interesting because it, it ties back to this. There's a concept within experimentation and... I actually borrow this in my book too, but I, I filter it through a Simpsons analogy. The word is plagiarized, Adam. Thank you. Yeah. Where you've got the concept of a local maximum and a global maximum. Yeah. When you're uh, trying to optimize for the local maximum, you're looking for these metrics that are perhaps very close to the site of the experiment itself. But if you're only optimizing for the local maximum, then maybe you've missed this idea of the global maximum, which is like, are there kind of bigger effects that you might be having that your experiment isn't necessarily testing for directly. And it sounds like you are looking for a local maximum here of what effects do we have on support contact reduction? And paradoxically, you drove the opposite of that, but you were instead actually proving in an interesting way that you were affecting this global maximum of stickier customers who are more likely to adopt and ultimately going to be like healthier business with with your company yeah totally it was like the the gods of experimentation smacking us in the face with this is what you should have been looking for and yeah it was great it was it kicked off lots of great conversations with the support team as well about you know flipping support from cost center into a value lever for a business which is super powerful and i believe strongly in ha having come from a support background as well anyway so yeah that was super interesting and from a metrics point of view again yeah super surprising but also showing like i said that we had more in common as orgs than, than a lot of people think that was really, really interesting. On a metrics, I'll just stay on metrics for a little while as well, because yeah. that we've just been talking about, okay, so conversation reduction is an important metric, but also the ones which are nearer and dearer to my heart, which are those ones of 
the product adoption funnel and whatever those individual product metrics will be for activation. And then if you zoom out from a product level, you've got the solutions your product offers your customers and then you can activate on them. And that's what we measure ourselves on too. And then there's overall platform activation as well. And they're the things that genuinely excite me because they're very aligned with what our customers find valuable. And that means with your customers, you're speaking the same language, essentially. You're just translating things into something that you can use with different teams in your org. And this is another unlock I had, this was in the last two, three years, when we kind of moved onto a, a growth team, uh, which was kind of half in marketing, half in product. And everything was all of a sudden about revenue. And it's not like I was averse to it, but having very poorly run my own books while I was self-employed, I was definitely, I think, I had some PTSD regarding uh, <laughs> AORR. Well, it's like at some point, like if you've been in the world of customer education or if you've been a creative and then all of a sudden someone's talking to you about revenue, it seems a little bit abstract from the thing that you're doing, especially if you're not like directly selling your Yeah, exactly. Your like how can I be creative when I'm just thinking about dollars? And it's kind of got a, or to me anyway, having come from like a creative background, like it had a, a dirty field or like now we're just talking about revenue. So I'd kind of like... I hadn't given it a chance. I kind of locked it down. Like I care about the customer and I care about activation and retention. I care about intent and I care about awareness and I care about all of these like things which were intrinsically like motivating for me. And then there was this yeah. scary word, you know, revenue. Oh, that's gross. I don't like that. Yeah. How did you learn to, learn. what's the Dr. Strain love? Learn to stop worrying and love revenue. Learn to love revenue. Short enough journey as well. I think this was, a, it was an interesting time for me and Rory as well. We, we got through it where I think he was a little bit frustrated with me that a lot of the time when we were talking about NORA or I was not negative, but like, I suppose took way longer than I should have to try and get behind some of these projects. And for me, it was about, I had to kind of convert these things into things that I cared about so that I could motivate the team so that I could get behind a particular project and see the connection to the things that I did care about and essentially use revenue as a proxy for the stuff that I knew I could do well. Because I think I had, I had some worries that I, I don't think well in this space. And it was just about trying to convert the things that I did care about into you know, a level up to the things that they can drive, which is better revenue. And yeah. what that really unlocked as well is, or what I've found, and it might be different for, for everybody's business, but that's the one shared word and shared goal in all orgs across the business. Like a business is a business for a reason and it's to make money. Great if you can align with your what the, the market needs and what your customers love. But ultimately, if you're not driving revenue, you're going the wrong way. And if your customers love you and you can make great change for them, if you're not making enough revenue, you're going to fail them because you know, you're going to go out of business and they'll have to shop around. So really tying to the value you can get and tying that into value you can give the business by driving better revenue for the business and, and different segments of the business is a massive unlock when you try and work cross-functionally and show these teams how you can add value to their mission or their goal as well. And then, like you said, when you work on your, your local data, your local maximum, that's where it's about you. Like they, if you're talking to the sales team, they probably don't care about you know, some of the product activation metrics you're talking about or about, oh, here's the engagement rate for this academy course we've got or a video on it. It might be off the charts, but they don't care. That the one thing which you can align around to at least have an icebreaker is what we're going to do to drive better revenue in this segment. We've seen great signals from these particular things we've done in the past, which have increased activation rates, which is meant for XXX revenue. And then 
you at least kick things off in the right language by aligning around people's goals for the quarter or for the year. And then you can translate it whatever way you need to get them on board once you've got that momentum and you've got their buy-in. I agree. And I think like you and I have talked about this before, like often in our world, we'll speak the language of instructional design and we'll even talk about evidence-based techniques within adult learning because it is a language of rigor and it is a language of research. And so we think sometimes that doubling down on that is what lends us a sense of legitimacy. And like maybe it does, especially in our own circle where other people understand how those things work. But then you try to bring that to the business and people who have other deeper areas of expertise, like it's not going to translate because again, we're not all speaking the same language. And and in a way, like revenue is that, I think you described it as like a Rosetta Stone. Mm. Like if you can translate what you do into revenue and what the other team does into revenue, well, now you're actually having a more persuasive conversation about how to prioritize things mm-hmm. because you're not just using your own deep expertise as a bludgeon. You're actually up-leveling the decisions that you've made to the level of how it's going to affect the broader business, mm-hmm. which is ultimately more persuasive, even if it's like not the natural place that you go to in terms of thinking you're going to be persuasive because it's like not, doesn't feel rigorous in the same way. Yeah, you're going to be outside your comfort zone. And you To be honest, you're going to probably have to give up a little bit of what you care about as a result, because once you know that, there's a huge responsibility to make sure that you're working on the right things for the business. Whereas previously, you could have been just, I'm working on the most exciting things, or I'm working on this thing that's a passion project for me because I want to have our, all of our academy and learning touch points, all part of this great big system. But ultimately, when you get down to a more informed place about the content and experiences that you create and the effects they can have on revenue, you need to work backwards and go, okay, am I working on the right things to drive revenue? And yeah. that's where you do have to, to give up a little and have some harder conversations with yourself. But ultimately, make sure that you are working on the right things for the business and it will streamline how you work to make sure that the kind of brownie points you kind of gotten over the years with what you did, it helps rejuvenate that relationship and it helps make sure that there's confidence that you're working on the right things, for both internally and externally as well. And you get a good shot in the arm for the trust that you've got in the business as well. And like, it really opens up doors for you to have yeah. the right conversations with lots of senior leadership too. I agree. Because like ultimately, you want to be credible to the business, not just within your own circle. Mm-hmm. And the way to do that is to show that you are a steward of the business and and you're looking out for it. And like, that's not different, by the way, than looking out for your customers. If you care about your customers and you care about how much value they're getting from the product and you care whether they're going to stay a customer for life, then you do care about revenue as long as you're uh, not in pricing and packaging. And if you're in the pricing and packaging team, then you also have to make sure that you have your pricing model set correctly to sustain that. But like in a healthy business, there's a direct connection between the work you do to make your customers happy and sticky and the revenue that comes in and, and stays in your business. For sure. But I actually want to take it a step further because what, what you said just like dropped a tinfoil hat onto my head. Oh, no. Let's imagine. In a good way. It's a good tinfoil hat. Yeah, no, I'm having a total tinfoil hat moment. Okay, like, let's go. Let's say you know, we all like to go to instructional design conferences and we hear all these great ideas and we hear, is X the future of customer education? Is mobile learning the future of customer education? Is the metaverse the future of customer education, right? Like we're being sold on a lot of really interesting, progressive sounding ideas. And often the way that those are being sold to us is that if we do not embrace whatever this is, the latest in learning technology, if we don't all change our LMSs to LXPs, if we don't all start 
switching Scorum over to XAPI, whatever it is, I'm just like thinking of examples I've heard of over various years that we're going to be left behind. But what is that? That's mm-hmm. a marketing technique, right? Totally. That's like vendors in the L&D space trying to sell us on an idea of what true progressivism and business relevance is in our world, in L&D or customer education, so that they can make revenue. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And like, I think we have to be, the more savvy we are about like what revenue is and what the relationship to the mechanics that operates in a business are, like, I think actually the better decisions we can make about what to prioritize and what to deprioritize. Totally. And it comes back for me to boiling things down again at that experiment level. Like, I don't care whether we have these nice things like having an academy is great. I love it. And I love that we get such great feedback about it. But ultimately, as a customer education leader, I can't care about that. It's nice. It's lovely. It motivates me. But I still need to care about is it driving the change that we need? Would we be better off setting a torch to that and just having, again, experimentation mode, a couple of lines of copy somewhere? Is that actually driving more behavioral change over time than this other cool, nice thing? And that's what I suppose, it, it sounds a little bit cynical, but again, at those conferences or when people are like, oh, you've got to learn through the metaverse. I'm like, don't, yeah, maybe, but let's find out, <laughs> what, what, will it drive that change? It, it, I don't care about it being the next cool thing. I ultimately care about getting down to the atomic level of adoption that I need. Adoption for features, products, solutions, platform with the customers to drive that revenue so that we can stay a viable business and keep driving that behavioral change that our customers want and need out in there. I don't care if we have to drive around in an ice cream van handing out flyers on how to use intercom. Whatever works, we can yeah. help. There is like, okay, to keep us engaged, there's a certain amount of fun that we have to have. We have to believe in it passionately. And I have to be able to motivate the team to, to feel like this is something they want to do. So there's a, an onus on me to ensure that we are working the right things, but also in the right ways that will make us a strong content team going forward too. Yeah. Well, and, and often there's a direct tie between what we do to keep ourselves engaged and what we do to keep customers engaged, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, if we were doing something that was so dry and so mechanical and where we had no ability to exercise our consultative or creative muscles, then, well, generally we're also not providing whatever the best solution is to, to the customer either. So luckily Absolutely. it's usually a, a it's, It sounds like therapy now, but you've got to work on yourself, make sure that you're bringing your best version of yourselves to that relationship. Otherwise you're not going to keep that as a strong, helpful, productive relationship over time because you lose interest. You won't be excited about driving that behavioral change. You'll just be doing a job. And I'll just be I'm just creating documents for X uh, or I'm just writing a video for blah. You need to have that fire and that interest in creating successful outcomes for your customers, which will create successful outcomes for the business. Thus, the circle continues. This episode is brought to you by Intellum. You know Intellum. We've had them on the show before. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know the customer education leads to retention and revenue. So the Intellum platform gives you everything you need to educate your customers, partners, and employees on the products and services you sell. They've got a great platform. They've got Evolve as an authoring tool. And with Intellum, put it all together. You can deliver highly personalized and engaging learning experiences, give your customers a single destination for all their learning needs, and create and manage a wide range of content. So check them out today at try.intellum.com slash CE Labs. That's C E L A B S. I agree. And and to that point, I love that you've kind of brought the conversation full circle because you talked about getting into customer education from being in a creative field and kind of realizing that 
ironically, what was feeding you and feeding your creativity once you made it a business was not actually feeding you anymore. And now, paradoxically, you're you're almost in the opposite situation where, in a way, trying to get curious and trying to get creative about what will drive product adoption, what will drive revenue, that's almost like a freeing and creative way to approach business. Totally. And right? it's the only way not, I can do it. Yeah. I, like, and that's something I found out as well for myself. Like, I can't just work on something. If, if I'm not interested, it will show in the work. Absolutely. If I'm phoning it in and I'm not motivated. And I'm, again, really fortunate to work in a company that just doesn't sit still. Like, we're no longer a, a little startup, but we still oftentimes behave like one. There's so much experimentation and like playful product enhancements and creations that it never gets boring. We've always got a scope for, and again, like I said, we were using our own product to deliver this educational material. So we're able to work in lockstep with the product team for how can we deliver this in a better way in product and how can we drive better you know, educational outcomes because Intercom can be used for that. So it always keeps me engaged, which keeps the, I hopefully the team engaged, which keeps the customers engaged yeah. as well. It, it's definitely a really great symbiosis in, in what we do as a company, what we do as a team, and the change that we can help bring our customers as well. And again, I feel totally privileged that we get to work in, in a spot like this all the way through the customer education funnel as well. I should mention, it's not just that kind of in-product stuff. Obviously, we have, we work in the, the marketing side. So we create those videos to actually drive that new business as well by working really closely with our sales team. And this is a whole other conversation we could have. And the differences we made to those videos once we talked to our sales team as well as our marketing team, because the, the way we were trying to market stuff wasn't the way we sold it. And Kelly works with, with, with the sales team to, to create those videos. She does an amazing job. Shout out to Kelly. Then once those people are in, they're in the product, they're working with the content that Danielle and Brian create to drive product adoption with the CLM team, Victoria. That's that in-product work where we did that experimentation of, and then it goes back in for that longer form best practice training that we used to have in our academy. And that's Danielle who leads the academy. You know Danielle, you've met Danielle. Yeah, She's awesome. Met Danielle. And then that more mature level of education where we've got certification as well. And all of that has grown from those seeds of product adoption and sitting at that desk in those early days with Des being between product and marketing and setting up those relationships to keep things creative, keep things honestly treading that, that line between business and customer and finding that magic in between and those aha moments for yourself unless you feel them and you you're just going to fake them with customers it's, it's super important to me to make sure that we, we are working on the right things in the right ways to keep everybody really engaged and i think it shows in the content and experiences we create too i love that and i think that's that's a wonderful place to got a bit of wrap up our, our journey here yeah i know yeah it felt a felt a tear come to my eye and i also I imagined everyone standing up and cheering as you were shouting <laughs> them out. So hopefully if uh, you heard your own name in the podcast uh, and you work at Intercom, you're feeling really good right now because, yeah, you do great work, like really have a ton of respect for Intercom's entire education program. And for those of you listening, if you haven't checked it out, please do go check out Intercom, check out the product, check out Intercom Academy. What else do people check out, Phil? Maybe, I don't know, check out outside, go out, take your headphones off, have a walk and uh, touch grass. Exactly. Take off your shoes and socks. Check out Shark mm. Week uh, on nice. the TV when you get back home, that kind of thing. But yeah, I think that's something which I like as well. Like you said, like we all go to the learning conferences just to, before we finish up where we find a lot of the value and what brings something different to what we do is that kind of nexus we are in between those different orgs. But at a, a macro level, 
it's the different influences we have. Like Danielle comes from a support and training background. I come from a music background. Brian on the team comes from a teaching background, like real world schools, yeah. teaching kids. Kelly worked in a government office creating content around city plans. It's all about things that are not what you're doing that actually make it. It's that culture ad that's important. So don't yeah. go to the customer education conference all the time. Talk to people in music production and who write fiction and find those different tangential bits which will add value and uniqueness and keep you interested in the stuff that you do and the change you can make because that's what will keep it interesting for you and keep it unique and keep it valuable for your customers too. Love it. What a great place to take it. So hopefully everyone uh, will go out and take on some sort of passion project, see some art, Bake appreciate a, a shark, <laughs> make a cake, whatever it is. And if you However, want to learn more about customer education, we do have a podcast website at customer.education, where you can find show notes and other material. And listeners, if you found value in this podcast, please share with your friends, your peers, your network to help us find the others. I think we said we're both lurking around on LinkedIn. Is that right, Phil? We are. We're lurkers. Long time lurker. First time listener. Caller. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Delete as applicable. Amazing. Thanks to Alan Coda for providing our theme music, unless we somehow managed Phil to give us a discount on uh, the ending theme today. I'll give you a coupon. Uh, we did. Oh, thank you. We know many of you are subscribed right now. And what we'd really appreciate is a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify Podcasts, wherever you consume and rate podcasts to share our little show with the rest of the world. And to our audience, thanks for joining us. Go out and educate, experiment, and find your people. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for Thanks, having Bill. me. That was great. Thank you.